You're listening to the Really Useful Podcast, the tech podcast for technophobes from makeuseof.com. My name is Christian Corley, and with me is Ben Stegner. How are you doing, Ben? Hello, Christian. I'm doing well. Uh, as of this recording, I am very much looking forward to the release of uh, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which comes out on Friday. So that is uh, quite a momentous occasion, a new Zelda game. Six years since the last one. I'm a big Zelda fan, so I'm super, super excited for it. I'm delighted to hear that. Uh, I, that's what's um, on my mind. <laughs> I don't know, kind of a non sequitur there, but that's what I've been thinking about. I saw, now you, you bring up Zelda, and uh, I just remember that someone who's de- done a demake of a Zelda game recently for the you Game which one it was? Boy, I'm going to tell you right now, courtesy of a link on Google gamingretro.co.uk I'm gonna find it there we go Zelda's Adventure from the CDI so it's not a very oh, well okay. known one yeah someone's uh, demade it um, and the, you can. it's on uh, itch.io you can download it as a ROM to play on the Game Boy that is pretty interesting and I, you can also play I'm, it in I'm, the browser I'm familiar with those three CDI games just because they've been, you know, memed to death. And I've heard, I think I heard recently that someone like quote unquote remastered them in the sense that they like improve the controls and a few other things. And people Uh claim they weren't actually that bad. I haven't tried them myself. I would like to try them just to say that I did, but I've heard they're awful. And also I'm not going to buy a CDI obviously. And I think emulation is pretty tricky for that system. So I'd be very curious to see someone's, interpretation of that being made on a inferior hardware you know the game boy well i will include it in the show notes if anyone else is interested in checking that out uh we're recording this on a uh, what is a bank holiday monday in the uk because uh, we've just got a new king crowned not many countries can say that are there that is true <laughs> um, i thought that it was today i didn't realize it was on saturday it was actually it like yeah. a like There's an observe been, type of thing where you get the day off because it was on a weekend? It's pretty much, yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah, they like to make a weekend of it, basically. In the UK, we don't get many bank holidays, so we, we kind of um, really take advantage of the extra ones that we get. I was going to say, yeah, I was looking just because, you know, working with people from across the globe as we do at the site, I, I looked at some other countries, like how many public holidays they get, and it... I, I think we really were about the same number, but yours are like you have more times you go like months without one than we do. Because really, in the U.S., we only have six. There are a lot more bank holidays, but most normal workers don't get off for them. Yeah, like Columbus yeah. Day or Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Like schools are closed and stuff like that, but normal workers don't get off like they do for Thanksgiving right, yeah. or Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Well, here in the U.K., we don't even have days like that. Really, it'd be really quite cool if the children could be off for like say St George's Day or whatever. Um, yeah, you can have all the kids in England off on St. George's Day, St. David's Day in Wales, uh, St. Andrew's Day in Scotland, that would work. Anyhow, but no, generally speaking, we have sort of uh, end of May, the May Bank holiday, and then our next one isn't until August. Yeah, we then have Memorial Day. After that, Day at the it end isn't of... again until December. Yeah, that's a really long, I wish they were more evenly spread out. So there's like 
I think like one Monday off a month is a nice thing to look forward to. Like, obviously that doesn't happen, but that's a nice standard yeah. if I was designing the holidays for the calendar. <laughs> if only you were, if only you were. Uh, so you're listening to the Really Useful Podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to consumer electronics, using computers, that sort of thing, and making it clear and easy for you to get a grip of. We call it the Tech Podcast for Technophobes, but, you know, you don't really need to be a technophobe to uh, j- listen to the show and join in. Uh, you really just need to uh, know the answers. And uh, no, that's wrong. You really just need to. You, you really just want to need, need to, to know the need answers. Need to want to know. Need to want to know the answers. Yeah, and uh, hopefully. Uh, Ask the right questions, and we have got the answers for you. Now, in this week's show, we've got a bit of uh, a look at some recent uh, technology news. It's, uh, it's a few days old now, but uh, some big things have happened which are worth discussing. And then we've got some tips and tricks to help you make better use out of your tech. And then we'll finish with some recommendations, which usually do come from the tech sphere. Um, the techiest my recommendation this week has got is that they have a website which you will want to visit. But we will um, come to that when we come to it. Let's kick off with this version of Windows 10 is the last version of Windows 10. Microsoft has announced that the current version of Windows 10, which is 22H2, is the final version of Windows 10, the operating system that was declared upon launch as the final version of Windows yeah, we see how that turned out. I remember <laughs> seeing that and thinking, this is going to be so nice for us because we can just, you know, our Windows articles can be updated over and over and Windows 10 will just be Windows 10. And that, of course, did not happen. So you believed Microsoft? Uh, no, but I also was, <laughs> you know, I was a little bit fresher when this, when all this was happening with Windows 10. So I wasn't yeah. probably as cynical then. I wouldn't say I believed them, <laughs> but... Well, because it's, it's kind of like... I'm. I guess you could say like Mac, you can't really have a parallel with Mac where it's like it's the last version. Like no. it, it's been the same. It's been like Mac OS 10 for all that time. And now it's Mac OS 11. It's yeah. There's never really a last version. Well, th- there never will be a last version, will there? Until there is a last version. And that's the last version. that will be a last version of anything, really. We'll be back to sticks and stones. Or you don't know it's the last version. Like Windows Phone 10 was the last version of Windows Phone because it ceased to exist after that, not because they updated it forever. Well, there's no need to be cruel. Sorry. And that's a person. <laughs> no, that's a source spot. So, yeah. Um, Windows 10, according to Statista, is, um, as of April 2023, has 70% of the market. That, that is, I can see this being, this could be worse than Windows XP when Windows yeah. 10 stops being supported. Because it, because all, you know, we remember we were all there for the history of it when they pushed everyone from Windows 7 and 8 to Windows 10. And it yep. was, hey, this is just a free upgrade. It'll be around forever. All that stuff. Like, I think a lot of companies finally just got off of Windows 7 because that was so beloved. And now we're going to have the same problem all over yeah. again. Well, currently, support for Windows 10 ends completely in 2025, but the way these things have gone in the past, and given that statistic, I can't see that happening. I wonder, I mean, I would be amazed. About to hold me to this if I guess this now. I mean, do you think they'd even get it down to like 30% market share by the time that the official end of support happens? No. Because then you know it's always, they say it's going to, like this day, that's the cutoff, and then it's always, well, you know, this business... 
you know, the, the healthcare industry or whatever, whatever industry still yep. needs it. So now we're going to issue emergency patches just for them for the next six months. Like it's, it's never the actual final cutoff. It's always all these exceptions and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, one of the big problems that Microsoft have had in the past was, um, and this isn't such a problem now, but one of the reasons they've had issues, and this is then fed into decision-making in IT departments and, uh, and directorates of corporations and public service bodies over the years is with Internet Explorer. I think it was Internet Explorer 6 that everything had to work with, everything had to run through. Anything that had HTML in it, um, it had to use Internet Explorer 6 and thereby had to adhere to the very rigid, um, I say standards in air quotes because every other browser was using completely different standards that have been agreed by the um, W3C, but not Internet Explorer. And I think that and, you know, the fact that Internet, that version of Internet Explorer or, and later version of Internet Explorer were kind of sort of backwards compatible, but they were baked into Windows as well, made it very difficult for corporate and organisational in-house app developers to make software without there having to be a big foothold in Internet Explorer. And I think this has caused a lot of problems going forward because for Microsoft, because people are now reluctant to move from an operating system to a new operating system because of perceived issues with compatibility. Yeah, that is a good point. And that was also back when um, the, the latest version of Internet Explorer was more tied to the ver the Windows version itself. I mean, yeah. not really with XP, I guess, but like, like we've talked about before with IE6 being so dominant at the time that you basically had to have it because of all those ActiveX apps, you know, that were yeah, yeah, web yeah. apps that were built for, you know, uh, commerce or whatever. So yeah. hopefully like Internet Explorer being a thing of the past now for basically will kind of untether it from Windows versions. I mean, it hasn't been as big of a concern, you're right, since at least Windows 10. But it is wild to think that, I mean, we're, it, Windows 10 is already eight years old. It feels like it just came out a little bit ago, but it's like it's, it's wow, getting yeah. up there, you know, like 20, 2015 was a fairly long time ago in, in the in yeah. technology years. Yeah, well, in real years as well. I had one fewer child, children in uh, 2015 than I do yeah, now. Yeah, I wasn't even out of college yet. So Whoa. I mean, that's like, you, you, you think it's, oh, it just came out. Like I remember, I remember because I wrote for Windows a lot and I wasn't able to upgrade because I had my college provided laptop at the time. And then we weren't able to upgrade yet because they wanted to keep it stable, obviously. And I'm like, I hope I still have things to write about even when I can't access Windows 10. We will move on. Chat GPT, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that the Chat GPT chatbot was banned in Italy due to data protection concerns. Uh, however, that has now changed and access to Chat GPT has been restored. OpenAI uh, said it had successfully addressed or clarified the uh, issues that were raised with it. The Italian data protection authorities, known as Garante, and they had accused OpenAI of failing to check the age of ChatGPT's users, who are supposed to be aged 13 or above. Uh, the regulator, Garante, told the BBC, for this is where I'm getting the news from, uh, it welcomed the measures OpenAI implemented, but called for even more compliance, and that implementing an age verification system and planning and conducting an information campaign to inform Italians of what happened, as well as of their right to opt out from the processing of their personal data for training algorithms, and that uh, 
there's going to be continued observation of what uh, ChatGPT and OpenAI are doing with people's data, which is kind of interesting. Because there is a whole privacy and copyright aspect to ChatGPT that hasn't really been investigated, really, has it? People have been, well, wow, it can do this. Oh, it can do this. Well, it can do that. But really, there, there is a lot more to it that needs deeper consideration, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of questions that are just kind of backlogged, I think, by governing authorities or just even websites deciding how much they're going to use AI just because it's not really clear what the legal implications are since this is a whole new world. Like with AI art as an example, we may have talked about before that, you know, when you tell it to draw something in the style of so-and-so or even just say, you know, draw a picture of this fictional character or whatever, it could be quote, being inspired by uh, an actual artist online without saying, hey, I use this person's style of art to learn from. And then that's sort of borderline plagiarism or whatever you want to call it. Maybe not plagiarism, but there's definitely a lot of questions about it in addition to the privacy, like you said. I would like this to be the podcast where I finally announce that Elon Musk has launched a cologne. But, <laughs> sadly not. Uh, a lot of people have been uh, complaining about Twitter over the past few months since Elon Musk took over. And, you know, it's it's changed. It's, in some ways it's better. In some ways it uh, feels a little, a little more fractious and perhaps less robust than it did before. There are plenty of alternatives that you can check out and leave Twitter behind fly the nest as it were i'm going to give you a list of them now that i've checked out over the past few weeks and then uh, we'll have a little chat about some of them now Substack notes is a kind of a twitter angle of Substack, the um, newsletter blogging podcasting platform subscribers would need to pay to read your tweets if you you know if you had a following on Substack and people paid to uh follow you then they would pay to read the notes but uh, what i've seen of that is surprisingly good actually uh there is post this is a very twitter like environment but it allows long form content and um, it was set up by former way ceo noam bardin who posed the question remember when social media was fun uh post is uh, surprisingly straightforward to use you just go in and you post it resembles the old twitter um which is kind of nice in some ways. Uh, the nostalgia for how it used to look. Exactly, yeah. 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 Uh, we've got Ether, which is a sort of cross between Discord and Mastodon. Uh, it describes itself as an open source self-governing communities with auditable moderation and mod elections. It's less of a microblog and more of a discussion area. Uh, but this is key thing. There are several key features, but this is the main one. There is no server. It's all peer-to-peer. So that's kind of interesting and different. Uh, another one we've got is Clubhouse, which is, um, it's not microblogging. You see, there's another aspect to Twitter, which a lot of people forget about, uh, although, you know, they're, they're off, often taking part, and you can just tune in and listen at any time. That's Twitter Spaces, kind of like live podcasts and discussions or whatever. Um, Clubhouse is the originator of that kind of uh, uh, conversation, a live chat that you have through your phone. And uh, if the Twitter spaces is something that you like about Twitter, but you're getting a bit tired of Twitter, you could check out Clubhouse if you haven't already. 
micro.blog is very much a micro blog ideal for short posts and also for long posts and it also makes you uh, makes it easy to engage with readers but it does come with a five dollar fee uh, there is a 30-day free trial if you want to try it out though now i was a little bit uh, in two minds to retain this but because it's popular uh, in some in some groups i've left in mastodon uh, which is an open source twitter alternative that offers greater control over what you see and the conversations you have now i've played with mastodon a few times over the years and to be honest with you i'm not that keen on it i don't find that it is or that it's cracked up to be it's never going to take over from twitter uh basically that's not going to happen with mastodon gab is another alternative uh, it's known as the alt-right alternative to twitter and was formed as an antidote to what CEO Andrew Tauber described as the entirely left-leaning big social monopoly. And, of course, uh, with uh, Elon Musk now in charge of Twitter, that's not really a selling point for Gab. Getter comes from a similar sort of angle. It's a marketplace of ideas and gives you multiple sign-up options from phone or email to Google, LinkedIn, Twitch, even Twitter. And it's easy to use. And you can think of it as a sort of less conservative gab or parlor. Parlor's not in this list because it's uh, it's on its it's it's been sold. Uh, but if you use parlor, get is a bit like that, but you know less conservative. Uh, co-host, a social network that is still in its early days and uh, has a slow sign-up process. So at the time of looking into all of these, you couldn't actually sign up particularly easily uh, without waiting for a long time but it has plays that it will never sell data sell ads or sell the company to anyone who might change these policies to make a quick book next we've got counter social which aims to offer its community four unique protections deep face protection bot sentinel integration identity breach alerts and fact layer integration basically if you're concerned about security and privacy and how um, various technology has developed over the past few years then counter social i mean the clues in the name uh is there to uh, tackle that for you uh accounts can have a 500 character limit per post you can share media and there's also a vr metaverse attached to it um with along with some other paid options i think that's probably a little bit overkill though but it's worth checking out now wt social was conceived by wikipedia founder jimmy wales and it's kind of, um, it only has a browser-based interface, but it's kind of a, a, a sort of a cerebral Twitter, if you like. It's, it's, an, it's, it's an intelligent discourse that you can take part in. It's kind of, uh, I like it, but, you know, I wouldn't be able to use it all the time because I kind of like Twitter, to be honest with you. And there's another one that's in private beta at the moment called Blue Sky Social, which, uh, again, has slow approvals. And uh, it aims to give creators independence from platforms and developers the freedom to build and use as a choice in their experience that may come along uh in the next few months but uh time will tell on that so ultimately there are 11 active twitter alternatives that you can check out now do you actively use any of these or do you have a preference i know you mentioned for some of them um like i had to pick a, a favorite if i had to pick a favorite of those i'm really keen on substack but i don't have any followers on substack so using substack notes i was really impressed by how easy it was to use and just get started with so i i i'm i would veer towards that but i've also found getter was kind of okay as well it wasn't too i mean i've i mean this is an updated article that i'm reading from 
And the original version of this had Parler in it, as well as Gab and Getter. And of those, I found Getter the easiest and less... It just felt what I perceived, and because it's a very US-based uh, platform, Getter. It just felt like a typical American conversation to me, whereas uh, Gab and Parler both felt a little more right-wing than I would be comfortable with normally. If that okay. is, if that makes any sense, um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't I think my. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Go on, no, go on. I don't. Reading through this list, I mean, some of these sound interesting. I don't really think I would use any of them myself. I, I I'm not really interested in adding any more social media to my life. Like no, most of the yeah. ones that I use, I only use because I've been using them for years, so I'm like in the habit of it. I mean, I do like, you know, using Twitter to keep. <clears throat> excuse me. I do like using Twitter to keep up with, you know, bands I like or personalities or sure. whatever. Like that's kind of how I just keep a, a finger on the pulse of things, but I'm not looking to add more. I've never understood the appeal of like the clubhouse or Twitter spaces model. Like, I no, no. Yeah. I don't know why I'd want to talk to random people <laughs> and like not have a turn to like, it's just odd to me. Um, so some of these are interesting, but yeah, I agree. I, I'm not, I'm just not interested in new sites not that doesn't mean that i think the old ones are better because they're older just that i'm not you know i'd like to spend yeah, yeah. less time on yeah. social apps i think if if you're one of these people who has a following on twitter and you maybe all already have a Substack, um then Substack notes is probably the one to switch to i think it's a really flexible sort of integration of that sort of micro plugin uh angle with everything else that Substack does so if that was the one you were going to go for, I would go for that. And if you were dead set on leaving Twitter and going to Mastodon, then no one's going to change your mind. You're not going to have a great time there. I'll be honest. But, um, you know, no one's going to change your mind, so off you pop. But generally speaking, I don't really... None of these does anything significantly different or better to Twitter other than Substack Notes, which has that other angle that's already, you know, it's already a well-used... Um, you know, just get, I, just, I call it a newsletter platform. It's not really, it's, it's so much more that it's not a newsletter, plugin, podcasting, whatever. It's, uh, it's all in there with Substack. So if you, that's the only one that really has anything significant to, to offer as an alternative to Twitter to the rest of these, really, in my opinion. Maybe WT Social, an outsider because of the more intelligent level of discourse, I suppose. And I mean, that sounds a little bit elitist and it's not meant to sound that, but to be honest with you, if you went there and engaged with the conversation, you'd probably find that possibly quite an apt descriptor. Uh, but we'll move on, shall we, to four reasons, Ben, why you should not buy a smart TV. Because after all, they're expensive and are they really worth it? Uh, yeah, we'll have to to, uh, to find out. So I, I think this, this article is sort of slightly misnamed because when it was originally written before I started updating it, um, smart TVs weren't as ubiquitous as they are now. Like now that anyone can go and get a, yeah. you know, a 4K smart TV for 300 bucks, it's not as big of a deal. But I think it's more cautions of why you might not want to get a smart TV or that you shouldn't buy a particular TV for its smart features is maybe a more apt way to put it. Yeah. Um, so just to, so everyone's on the same page, if you're not aware, a smart TV is just any TV that can get on the internet itself, meaning that there has apps like Netflix that are built into the TV and you don't need to have a, a, a external box like a Roku to get online with your TV. 
So the four major points we can go through here. So the first one is that smart TV security and privacy risks are a real concern. Um, any device that can get on the internet and contributes to the internet of things. I don't know if that's still even used, but that, that phrase meaning that's just a device that's online. That's not a computer or a phone, basically. Um, the FBI in the U.S. has issued warnings uh, about smart the, the, the privacy risks of smart TVs in the past. Um, most of them use a feature called uh, automatic content recognition or ACR. And that basically tracks what you're watching. Um, so if it knows that you like certain kinds of shows, or it knows that you fall into a certain age group or whatever, um, your TV can use that to show you more relevant ads as you know, of course, the dystopia of ad marketing continues. Um, but there's also security updates too. So a lot of smart TVs maybe don't get updates for a super long time. And so if the manufacturer stops updating it, then you have an outdated device on your uh, network, and that could become a weak point, uh, even if you keep everything else up to date. Uh, and also most smart TVs have microphones on their remote. Some have cameras, not all of them. Um, same same issue there where if your device is out of support, that's a lot of data um, that you're potentially giving over to someone who breached the network or just the TV maker itself uh, to watch TV. Uh, next major point is that other streaming devices are just better. So um, the main draw of smart TVs is being able to watch streaming apps and YouTube, Netflix, Hulu um, on your TV directly. Um, but you can get a lot more from an alternative device. So uh, generally their remotes are better, uh, something like the Roku remote. Um, their voice assistants are probably better than what your TV offers. And the great thing is, is that you can take those platforms uh, elsewhere. So if your TV stops working or is no longer up to date with security patches or whatever, you can take your existing Apple TV or Amazon Fire Stick or whatever and use it on a new TV. And it's the same experience. It'll probably keep getting updates for longer. Um, what was one of the other points here? I'm losing myself. Um, they also offer better integration with your existing devices. So like mm -hmm. an Apple TV obviously makes it really easy to cast from your phone to the Apple TV, uh, similar with a Chromecast or those devices, whereas your smart TV might not have those features built in. Um, third is that smart TVs have inefficient interfaces. Um, you, so you, you probably done this where like trying to type something on your smart TV's remote is like absolutely miserable yeah. to hit a, yeah. a bunch of buttons and directions, you know, to type something. So that sucks. Um, some newer TVs have this a bit better. My LG TV actually has like a pointer function. So if you shake the remote, you can actually point at the TV like you're using a mouse, which makes it a little bit better, but it's still not as ideal as just, you know, using a mouse or your finger on your phone. Um, so that, that part kind of stinks, like trying to navigate around is just very tedious with a, a TV remote. And then finally, my last point was that smart TV performance is often unreliable. Um, I've had a Samsung TV and now I have my LG one and the LG one's better, um, but I still have, have had bugs with both. Um, things freeze up, apps crash, that kind of thing. Um, I've had issues with YouTube where it always resets my resolution. Um, on my old TV, the speed up function didn't work on YouTube when they added it. So like they added it finally to TVs. And then if you selected anything beyond one time speed, it would play the video faster, but didn't play the audio. So it was basically pointless. Um, and, and all this really isn't a surprise because smart TVs are not the most popular device that people use to watch YouTube, Netflix, that kind of thing. So obviously companies are going to spend their time on their web app and their smartphone apps, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's so yeah. it's 
in all, with a smart TV, you're probably going to buy one when you buy a TV because that's just what's on the market right now. Um, but it's important to realize these potential drawbacks before you buy one. Keep that in mind. Uh, if you do, do choose to buy one, keep that in mind for which TV you buy. Um, you want to buy one that's going to get updates for a while and one where you like the OS that's not a pain to use every time you want to watch something. A few uh, weeks ago, I reviewed, and I probably mentioned it on the podcast, I don't remember, but I must have done, because I was surprised at how good it was, actually. the um, A new TV, a Samsung TV, that I bought for a specific purpose, which was basically uh, the fact that I was offered the opportunity to uh, review an Android TV box, but it was in 4K, and I didn't have a 4K TV. So I went and bought a new 4K TV, which was the uh, Samsung QE43Q60B. And I was surprised. I was really, really surprised how lovely it is. It's got an absolutely smashing picture, uh, particularly with the 4K stuff, obviously. But, you know, with um, less than 4K, um, you don't get much 2K, do you, really? Uh, largely speaking, things have jumped from sort of... Uh, full hd to 4k uh yeah. in terms of uh media releases and what have you uh so the 4k looks amazing uh the 1080p looks good it's got beautiful black tones on it as well which is uh, very important with tvs these days i feel but most importantly it does have a bit of a drawback it's not very good at uh, input select it has difficulty detecting my steam deck Okay. I find very, very irritating. It'll find... Yeah, I've had problems with um, HDMI CEC, which is called 10 different things on 10 different TV yeah, yeah, brands. But yeah. it's, it's that feature where, you know, when you turn sort of your... Integrated your remote control turns, thing. Yeah. 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 It's really nice, but it does just get screwed up pretty often. I usually end up... I keep it on for, like, my systems I don't play as often. But, like, for my PS5, like, if I have to turn my screen off, I don't want my PlayStation to shut off, too. So it, it's yeah. useful, but also pretty clunky in many situations yeah yeah okay uh i mean those those reasons why you shouldn't buy a smart tv and you know, with with the, the differences with um how, how, how the ideas sort of evolved and what a smart tv does a regular tv doesn't uh it's probably worth pointing out that i have um and i'll include in the show notes there's a look at dumb tvs you can buy a dumb tv still um but they're called uh, monitors and you need to buy external speakers Well, we've made it to that part of the show where we offer you our recommendation, something that we've experienced and enjoyed, usually with a tech angle. And um, he says, and uh, then, uh, you know, we give you the, the bit of a spiel about it, why we liked it, and uh, links to it in the show notes and why you might want to check it out yourself. Who's going first, Ben, me or you? How about you go first? Because I feel like okay. I've been talking our, our listeners' ears off. If this isn't a techie thing. But it does have a website, as I mentioned earlier. And for that reason alone, I feel it qualifies. At the weekend, as mentioned in the uh, intro, it was, it's was it been the um, coronation. My wife and I kind of ignored that. Uh, not for any Republican reasons, but basically because uh, my wife is a local councillor. And there was an election on Thursday. And I booked a night away for Friday night because I knew she'd need the rest after. Okay after the election so uh we went to york which is one of the few towns cities beg your pardon in the uk that has a fudge kitchen 
Like a place where they make their own fudge. Just they to- make their own okay. fudge. Yeah, okay. basically. And so there's one in York. You'll know, If you're familiar with the UK, you will notice a theme to these cities. York, Bath, Windsor, Canterbury, Cambridge, and Edinburgh all have a fudge kitchen. Okay? And so that it's basically a chain of boutique fudge makers. Okay? And they make the fudge on huge marble tables in front of you. And you can watch them making it, and you can watch it setting. You can even get some warm fudge to eat, eat after they've uh, made it. And you, it's absolutely delicious. It really, really is stunningly delicious how nice this fudge is. Sometimes with fudge, it has a bit of a sort of a bitty, grainy quality. Uh, mm-hmm. But because of the manufacturing technique that they use, manufacturing is not the best term here, but because of the technique that they use here, you don't get that bittiness to it. It's perfectly almost perfectly smooth absolutely delicious and even better they do dairy free fudge as well using uh, oat milk so if you're a vegan or if you have a dairy allergy like my little girl does then that's like an even it's like an added bonus because the fudge is absolutely stunningly delicious they've got a whole range of flavors and yes they are getting free advertising right now uh, but i feel it's worth it to uh, spread the word i was first told about the fudge kitchen about 15 years ago and i couldn't believe it until i tried it how nice it really is uh so and of course the great thing now i'm not going to say that it's a good idea to order fudge from the uk and then have it shipped to the united states because it might have dried out by the time it gets there i think that would be lost in uh, the journey but if you're in the uk or if you're visiting the uk and you're going to one of those great cities uh which are all great tourist destinations and i think nearly all of them have roman connections as well i don't know why um certainly the first two do uh, it's definitely worth checking out the Fudge Kitchen, and you can find out more about it at fudgekitchen.co.uk. That does sound quite yummy. I don't think I've ever really been anywhere where they have that kind of thing where you're watching them make fudge in front of you. I've been to a few places that make their own fudge, and like they have a bunch of fudge in the little display case, but I've, I don't think mm. I've ever had that like open experience where they're crafting it. That sounds good. I haven't had fudge in a while, come to think of it. So anyway, what's your recommendation? Yeah, so my recommendation is actually kind of a split one. So I'll cover both and explain why. So the first half of my recommendation is is a game. Um, it is Bowser's Fury on Nintendo Switch. And so this game is actually part of a re-release of a different game. So there was a game on the Wii U, which as we know didn't perform too well, called Super Mario 3D World. And if you know anything about Mario, the games are kind of split between the 3D titles like Mario 64 and Mario Galaxy that have a couple of open levels with lots of objectives. And then there's the more straightforward Mario games like like the 2D ones where you're just trying to get to the end of the stage. Yeah, uh, Mario 3D World is kind of a combination of those two where you can move in 3D, but it's level-based objectives where you're trying to get to the end and not like open-ended stuff like Mario 64. So I played this game on Wii U. It's a good game. I recommend it. And a couple years ago, Nintendo re-released Super Mario 3D World on the Switch. Um, and when they did, in that package, they bundled in a new game called Bowser's Fury. And it is a short, it's like very short, 100% of it in maybe three or four hours. Um, it's a very short, open world-ish type game where the plot, or the plot in a Mario game, you know, the setup is that Bowser has been corrupted by something. And so he's giant. 
you're on a lake with a bunch of different islands, um, and it's sort of, so it sort of mixes the open-ended Mario of going to the different islands, and then the level-based Mario of completing challenges on those islands. And every so often, Bowser wakes up, starts attacking you, and you have to grab one of the uh, collectibles in the game. Right. Uh, the cat shines, they're called, to, to set him back. So Bowser's Fury is really solid. I'm really glad I played it. It's short, it's sweet, um, it's not super difficult, but it's fun. It's dense. There's a lot to find. Uh, it's just a well-crafted experience. But I didn't want to pay full price for it because I already played 3D World, wasn't interested in playing it again. And as Nintendo games never go on sale, I wasn't paying full price for it. So the second half of my recommendation is Gamefly. So this is a U.S. service. I'm not sure if the U.K. has a similar one. But Gamefly surprisingly still exists, and it is a video game rental service. So Whoa, kind of what? similar to, yeah, yeah, if it still exists. I remember actually one of my earliest articles on the site was places you can rent games. And Gamefly was the only one I knew about, but I looked up other ones at the time. This was, you know, years ago. So it's kind of like DVD Netflix was, or that's going out the window soon too, um, where you sign up for an account and they have different accounts where you can have two games out at once or whatever. Um, and then you add, you have a queue where you add a bunch of games that you want to play. And then as they become available, they'll ship you a game in a, in a package. You play it as much as you want. There's no like return date. When you're done with it, you ship it back to them and then they send you your next game. Um, and you just pay a monthly fee for the use of the service so whether you're playing one game a month or five games a month you don't pay any more it's just the, the cost of the service so yeah it was really nice i there was a month free trial that i used so i got to play it for free um but i think that the prices go from like ten dollars a month for their basic plan to like twenty dollars a month maybe um so it depends on how many games you'd want to rent at a time uh and they have both new games and older ones too so if you if you're looking for like ps3 or even like older game boy advance games i think those are on there too um and the, and the process is really easy too they ship it to you in like a papery like cd size envelope and then you rip part of it off get to get the game out and then when you send it back there's like a another flap that you pull an adhesive off and then just seal it so it's really really easy you just drop it in the mailbox um so I know game rentals aren't as popular now with like PlayStation Plus and Game Pass and all those subscription services, but if there's ever a game you want to play that you don't want to pay full price for, especially a Nintendo one, Gamefly uh, might be a good option to play it for less. So yeah. I recommend, if you, if you check it out, definitely play Bowser's Fury if you have a Switch. But yeah, it's worth it for uh, for other games too. That's insane that you can still do that. I know, I'm, I'm really surprised. I wonder what their earnings are like because I'm really surprised that... Uh, they're still around um, and people still want to do that. I guess with games becoming more expensive and, and it's nice, it's nice that there's no return date. Cause then, you know, if you rent a long game, you don't have to feel like I have to beat this in two weeks and then send it back. Like if it takes you two months to beat a game, you know, if it's 15 bucks a month, you still only pay $30 compared to paying 60 or $70 for the game brand new, you know? So yeah. would you use something like that or? I don't know. I'm, Cause I'm not, you know, I'm I'm out of the whole. It, that's not in my mindset anymore, is it? You know what I mean. So it's not playing really, new games. Yeah, yeah. It's that's so strange. I'd have to. Well, that's how I am too. I rarely. I mean, like saying at the start that I was excited about Zelda. That's an exception. Like I, I rarely buy brand new games, partially because I have so many to play already, and partially because most games g drop in price quickly, and also they're often disappointing when there's hype. Um, but Nintendo games don't really drop in price like that. So if I'm going to buy a game at launch, it's usually a Nintendo game because, you know, you're not going to save anything by waiting even three or four months. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would I would I use it? I don't know. I'd, I'd think about it, I think. 
Yeah, well, that's what the free trial is for. I'm not trying to sell it to you. I'm, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I sound like I am. I don't know why I said that. But yeah, I mean, it's I I, I cancel. I, I I didn't say subscribed after I after I returned Bowser's Fury. I canceled it because, like I said, I have so many other games that I'm not looking to rent from them. Um, but if yeah. there was ever kind of like a short list that I wanted to just rent and be done with, because I like owning games too. You know, I don't want to like not have any games to let friends borrow or just know that I have them. It's kind of nice to have a collection too. So it depends on your, your preferences on that, but. Okay. Well, the link to that will be in the show notes. So, uh, and indeed the link to the fudge kitchen as well. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's really useful podcast, the tech podcast for technophobes from makeuseof.com. We'll be back for a new show soon. Get in touch if you would like us to discuss any particular topic via Twitter or Facebook or through the site, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Until then, it's goodbye from us. (laughs) 